always start with the hardest one. You have your prototype validated. You have the clients who said, yes. So you start to draw your mechanical parts and then you go to all potential suppliers where you immediately validate the idea. For example, you want to make something from Titan. But if you don't go directly to the producers of the Titan materials and don't ask how much does it cost and how is it complicated to do, you will not know that actually it's not doable and nobody will buy it. Welcome to Venturing Women, a podcast about female founders, investors, and ecosystem enablers. Hi, this is Daria Kamkalova. I live in Berlin, and back in 2019, I was waiting impatiently for the Berlin Senate to allow e-scooters on our streets. When this happened, the city quickly filled up with scooters just everywhere, on the pavements, in the rivers, on the fences. Berliners seemed to compete in creativity and vandalism. Today, I'm talking to a founder who is an enthusiast of docking stations. You may recall that early bike-sharing solutions came with docking stations. To many, they seem to be a symbol of the past. Paulina Mihailova argues that they come with so many benefits that should actually be the future of shared micromobility. Paulina is a co-founder of Knot, a company that offers docking stations for scooter and bike-sharing. She co-founded Knot in 2015, long before shared scooters came into vogue and companies like Lime and Bird were launched. Not every founder can boast to have built a technology that can survive a real flood. Paulina can. She offers an honest and detailed account on building a hardware business in the micromobility space. In this episode, I also have a co-host for the first time. Irina Vakatova takes care of social media channels of this podcast. But that's in her free time. Professionally, she's a product operations manager at TM Mobility, a shared micromobility provider. You might have ridden their scooters in Europe. I thought, if we have such an expert in the space on the team, it would have been a shame not to bring her to this interview. Hi, Paulina. Hi, Irina. Hello. Hi, Daria. Welcome to Venturing Women. Happy to have you here. Paulina, you have founded Knot in 2015, and it was still the dawn of the shared electric mobility, and most of the global well-known operators like Lime and Tier didn't even exist at the time. How and why did you go for the idea of docking stations? 2015-16, it was times where we didn't speak yet about electromobility. If you look on the main picture, as you said, Lime, they, they appeared in 2017, Bird as well, these guys came later but what existed in that time and was the biggest inspiration for me is the whole world of bike sharing solutions for example if you think about paris and Willib, if you think about germany with the deutsche bahn system and all these cities they have quite marvelous networks of shared transportation with the bike sharing stations and but that moment i just finished my master's studies and i did another studies in entrepreneurship and as was starting to find a good business idea I was trying different businesses and then it was like okay let's do something like bike sharing with a station but with a scooter and if we think now, we know words like free floating, we know about IoT, we know about the swappable batteries. All this vocabulary was unknown by then. We faced the invention of all these concepts because our first product we launched in Paris in 2016. It was the station, but with manual scooters, normal kick scooter when you have to push by yourself. So it's man-powered, non-electric powered. I live in Berlin and it's flooded with free float scooters similar to many other European cities. Why are you building a dock-based technology? What are the benefits? 
ah, you really want me to make the pitch. I truly am the docking enthusiast because there are main reasons why the dock base brings advantages to the micromobility. The first one and the main for me, as you said, the streets are floated with, and that's something that I don't want to do. I want to have stations, fixed infrastructure, which locks of vehicles and make the city streets clean. When think about vandalism impact, when the scooter is not attached, even though there are very good new technologies which allows to park them in a good way so they don't just lay around everywhere, anyone can move them. And I've seen many cases, for example, in Paris, where the scooter was in the middle of the street, creating a complete mess for cars in the middle of the sidewalks when people cannot walk through. So all these can be prevented by the station. And at the same time, it will also save the vehicle from the vandalism because nobody can just take it and throw it into the water and destroy it completely. And another reason, and maybe that's one of the main reasons for me, is that the overall environmental impact with the docking station is much lower because you don't have to swap batteries. When you need to swap a battery, you have the whole infrastructure to charge batteries, to collect batteries. In many cities, the collection of batteries, it happens with a van. So somebody is driving overnight, collecting the batteries, bringing them to facilities, changing it with another battery. And the most importantly, you usually have more than one battery for scooter, at least one half or two batteries per scooter. That means that you overproduce batteries, you overproduce CO2 because you ride with the van and you have different calculations, but usually it's around 70% less of CO2 impact for the dog-based solutions. A lot of people say, okay, but I cannot go to my door with a station. I have to find the station. It makes it complicated. On that point, what I really believe is that people today in the big cities are really spoiled and we cannot talk about door-to-door mobility in our days because, well, whoever can ride a bike or scooter can also walk 200 or 300 meters. And making the micro-mobility hubs on the corner of the streets make the whole system more efficient, more protected, more operationally stable, and also less environmentally aggressive. So for all these reasons, docking station rules and Go docking stations. So we could possibly imagine that as something like a scale, right? So on the one end of the scale would be the comfort for the user, but also chaos. And I agree with you. I feel totally spoiled in Berlin. Absolutely. But on the other side of the scale would be a little bit less comfort of the end user, but also more safety, cleaner cities, less chaos, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's also educating the user. If the user would understand what is behind the door-to-door mobility, we've seen it all in, in the beginning when the all big operators came to the markets, we've seen the mess it's created. And people get adapted very quickly with the fact that we cannot leave the scooter anywhere now. We have to find spot which is authorized for the parking. So that's exactly the same which happens with the docking station. And I agree with you. And it's not just about education. Sometimes it's about a good user experience. So for instance, when the geofencing technology was introduced and geofencing allows you to block certain patches in the city and protect those patches from people parking scooters there. In the beginning, it would happen quite often that you first stop and try to park somewhere. And then you realize, oh, it's actually protected territory. So you can't do that. You don't see it on the map immediately. And that was a bad experience. Now, when operators show you those territories clearly on the map, you know in advance, okay, I will not be able to park over there. So I will not even attempt to do that. And the difference is just, that's it. That helps again to make the city cleaner without a bigger impact on the user. 
Speaking about user behavior in terms of parking, there's been a recent research, I think it was Australia and the US, where they looked into how people on the streets perceive parking of the scooters. And in one of the cities, it was mandatory to lock a vehicle to some kind of object in a similar way we do with the bicycles. And in the other, it wasn't. And what the research has noticed is that people who are using the streets and not using the micromobility, they're not aware of the city parking rules, right? So their subjective understanding of scooters piling up on the streets or blocking the streets is different from the actual rules that the city set up. That is why psychologically for people, it is nicer to have vehicles locked to a docking station because in their mind, that is a dedicated spot on the street specifically for the micromobility. If they do the same on a free parking spot, which is now a new policy in Berlin, that you can park your bike or your scooter on a free car spot, the perception is different because it feels like the micromobility is taking up the space where they don't belong, while the docking station can potentially be a solution for such a kind of image issue. So how do you see your business model? Who are your main clients? Are these the cities that are trying to build the transport infrastructure or are these the operators that charge their vehicles with your docking stations and that are protected from vandalism with them? Well, we have quite a versatile product. If I present the product as a whole, it's like turnkey solutions. Or for example, tomorrow, Daria and Irina, you want to launch your own sharing business for vehicles. You can come to us and say, I need 100 scooters. I need 50 docking stations because I have authorization from the city and I need the sharing application under our own brand. And we can provide you the whole product. We have few different groups of clients. We have cities. In the other hand, it can be operators or it can be also the B2B. We have many big companies, banks or others who come into us and just want one station, two station with the application to, to provide the service to the employees because they need to move around the city, they need to move around the campus, they need to go home. We have only one network where we operate ourselves. It's Strasbourg. It's kind of our showcase because we, we also want to show our clients that you can save a lot of money by running the system with the docking stations and you can see how it works with the stations. So they can come here, they can visit our facilities. So that's the only network that we operate. But all the other networks, we are the provider of the service. So our business model is when we sell the product, the stations, the scooters, the application, and then we have a license behind where we operate the software and we give all the advices to the customers, but we not operate that networks ourselves. In many cases, for example, when we're talking about the city, the first motivation of our client is not to gain money, but is to provide service to the citizens. So that's basically like a one-stop shop for someone who wants to do a local micromobility operator or operation. Exactly, yeah. Nice. If we are talking about the hardware business in general, how would you say you validate your ideas and build prototypes? How do you finally choose your partners to do the prototyping and the production if you don't have your own? I can spend hours talking about that. And before I go directly to answer your question, there is a very important setup, which is the team. You need to have the team which has competences in mechanical engineering, in electrical engineering, and then in software engineering. So these are the three main groups. And all these teams need to work together. When we created the company, 
we first wanted to go outsource and try to build the project from the outsourcing competences. And very quickly, we realized that it's something which will not work, at least for our company. And I hear a lot of people giving advice to new hardware company, just go outsource this and that and focus on something that didn't work for us. How did you understand that? The first one, I would say the money-wise, because you always see the outsourcing will be cheaper than to hire people, especially when you work in France. It's a terrible country to build a business because social security is super expensive. 60% of all the salary you give on top to the government. So it's super expensive and very hard to get good engineers for good for startup money. If you outsource an application with the team based somewhere, you will pay cheaper for sure in the beginning. But as soon as you need to get any updates, as soon as you need to change something, you will pay more. And the only time we get the outsourcing experience, it was a catastrophe. So, I mean, you spend just much more money. The second reason, time-wise, because when you have all competences internally, you can move very quickly. You can put them all together in the same room. I'm saying lock in the room and then just let them work and and try to find the solution as quickly as possible. Then also making the project much more consistent because when you have the team who knows one another and work together, they also can understand better how to organize the process. And now how we go through the prototyping process. The beginning point for me, when you have the idea, you have the brilliant idea to do something absolutely crazy. Let's make the shoes to walk on the moon. Depending on how much resources you have, you can do it more more or less in a quality way. For me, the main first point would be to draw it, to make the design. It can sound crazy because why not thinking about technical scientific restrictions? The key is design because when you have your product drawn, and somehow designed, maybe render it. If you have some money, just go to a good design firm, then you render the product. You can also show it to a client immediately. You can go to your potential clients. You can say, hey, I have this brilliant idea. Just look at that. It's so good. It's so beautiful. Would you like to buy it? And then if you're lucky enough, if you have a good reputation, you can already get the first orders and even finance the further prototyping and production process because they already validated the idea. Once you have a design, the most flexible is, of course, the software. Software can adapt itself and they can fill in the holes and they can also even enhance the product in the end. The second one is electronics because electronics doesn't take much space. It's expensive in prototyping, but still it's something doable. And then the most rigid and the most complicated and also the most expensive is the mechanical engineer when you need to create the form and also need heavy investment into moldings into choosing of the process of the production so always start with the hardest one you have your prototype validated you have the clients who said yes so you start to draw your mechanical parts and then you go to all potential suppliers where you immediately validate the idea for example you want to make something from titan but if you don't go directly to the producers of the titan materials and don't ask how much does it cost and how is it complicated to do you will not know that actually it's not doable and nobody will buy it So always go back and forth with how much it will cost for the end product and how complicated is it to produce and to make the full-scale project. Like docking station is a complicated project, but if we take smaller parts of the project, like for example, changing the fork of the bike because we need the new fork to put on the bike to lock on the station. Even for this fork of the bike, you can spend four months of complete every day going back, going forth between client, suppliers, engineering department to finally get the product done. 
So that would mean checking by their clients who are interested first in a concept and in a design, and then moving on to conceptualizing the actual materials, the actual build that you want, and talking to suppliers directly to understand if it is viable and if you can build a sustainable product that will fit the needs that you're producing at the cost that is manageable for your clients. Exactly. And then the other complicated thing for our business is that we're building the B2B2C project. And in that process, in many business cases, I've seen that the C part is completely forgotten because our clients giving us money and make us leave and pay the salary. These are business or cities. That's not the final user. So it's also very important to include them on some step to make some test group or user groups in the very early beginning. And it's especially important in the software, for example, in the UE, because the city manager might not understand what the end user wants. And often the end user doesn't have even the opportunity to say to the city manager what exactly they want to see and what exactly they want to have as the end result. You began responding to the question about prototyping with a comment about the team. And you said that you can lock up the team in the room. Now I know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> we just don't see you. Just lock them in the room. You're still a very small team. Is it nine or 14 people? It's 14. 14. Yet you operate on an international level. Can you share some stories where your team had to go above and beyond to conquer a new market? And how did you do that? We have a very multilingual team. We have native speakers in Russian, in Spanish, in German, in English and French. So we can cover a very big part of the world. And I think it's extremely important to speak the local language when you want to sell someone. It would never be possible to sell, for example, in Uzbekistan if I was not speaking Russian because you cannot communicate in English, you cannot make the deal, you cannot do anything. Coming from France with some crazy idea and it will not work. We just get lucky because we've been first on the market. We build the product first in English. We never thought, let's start with a very local French solution in Strasbourg and then try to spread. No, we were immediately like, let's try to do it big English. And that was very useful to score the first clients and then to spread. And we signed the new deal with the client in Maldives, which is a new country for us. It will be the 10th country. And well, the deal is signed. So now we start working on the project. We have the first kickoff meeting. And now the technical team realize that, for example, Stripe or PayPal or any payment providers that we have, for example, in Europe or in other countries, they just doesn't work in Maldives. So that means we need to have another payment integration, which adds more work. Then the hardware team, they started to dig about ordering the SIM cards and we realized that any SIM card provider that we work with doesn't provide SIM cards for Maldives, which means we need to find local SIM cards. And if we find the local SIM cards, and even though we will have them in our warehouse to assemble, we cannot test because the SIM card will not work in Europe. You always can find the solution, but it makes the work complicated. Exactly like with the prototyping, you can see the new country as a prototype every time. And first you open the country, you go through all these problems. So if tomorrow we will have the second project on Maldives, it will be much easier. Can you share with us any moments where you felt so proud about what you've done and what Knot has achieved? That's a very big plus of making the hardware compared to software, even though I'm always saying to my team and to everyone that's the last hardware business I will be ever involved. Really? <laughs> and then in five years, we will see Paulina launching yet another hardware company. 
<laughs> Probably, yeah. But it's it's very cool when you can actually touch the product. I haven't even shared yet, but we will come very soon with the next generation of the stations, which will be completely different. And we spend a lot of time with the designers and we made this excellent textures we really 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 want to touch and when you see the station when you see it installed in the street and you can touch it and it's brand new and it's shiny it's like the shiny new car even though i'm not the car person okay it's like the shiny new bike and it's very beautiful so that's very cool i'm really really like to see the project coming and the product coming out of the production so that's the first part then with the users it's a bit more complicated because you always will have bad feedback which is good because bad feedbacks help you to make the solution better but it's very rare when somebody shares a good feedback i'm always making the print screen and saving them on our internal support system i'm keeping all the good reviews because it's making very happy and i know how happy it makes the developers when somebody's saying out of nowhere oh, i really like the application you made they're like oh it's so nice and they're so happy there was a very big flood in europe and especially belgium and north of germany two years ago i think when our stations in vervier which is in the Valoni part of Belgium was completely covered by water. So the station was two meters under the water and then the water came out and we came to see what we can save from it. We'll also take the station out because the city was completely devastated. So you had to redo the roads. And we found out the scooters were still there, which is very good because none of the scooters went or injured someone. It was a lot of mess around. So we took out scooters. Scooters, of course, was out of service because, well, too much water and then battery. But the station, we just uh, took it back in our facilities. We cleaned everything. Then we plugged it in and it worked. Even the engineers, he didn't believe it. He was also always thinking about make it ready for the urban environment, for the rain, for the snow. But nobody thought about making the station which can go underwater. He was very proud and we were very surprised about having this kind of technology. It was a good marketing material. This is amazing. It's a fantastic story. Yes, I think it's a dream for any hardware engineer. Exactly. To, <laughs> of course, not to have a city flooded, but to have in your portfolio a kind of this story about the durability of the product that you have built. And actually the station were refurbished, cleaned and then installed. So they're still working. We can all learn a bit from the stations. Even if you have been for some time under two meters of water, there's still life out there for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think with climate change, we're now seeing much more floods, even in Europe. So it may mean that the hardware may have to adapt to and become more durable. And you have already validated the with your hardware that yeah it, it will survive <laughs> i always ask our guests the same question about experiences that were unrelated to their career but shaped them as a leader and a founder what is it in your case I can think about two examples. The first one, I've been always very organized and independent. I was raised by the single mom. And since very young age, I was one year old when they divorced. And my mom was always working. She's a PhD um, biologist, also going through the 90s in Russia, in St. Petersburg. So she was always working. And since like, I don't know, five years old, six years old, I always had to cook, to clean, to go to school, to do it all by myself. And it was actually a very useful experience. So I'm always counting on myself. And and trying to do very organized way. And in that experience, I'm very introvert person. I'm terrible introvert. Not a sociopath, but I'm really afraid of talking to people and trying to find the way of expressing myself. So I've been going through the theater for many years. So when I was from eight to 15, 
And it was scary. And once I cried on the scene, it just ran out because I couldn't be there. I was so under stress. But that's something that really shaped me. You have to be there. You have to force yourself because, well, you have to reshape yourself. Otherwise, you will just not be able to talk to people and do anything. So that was a very early realization that I needed. And that was very useful to go through this experience all the time. So you grew up on stage? I can say so, yeah. I grew as a person at stage, always working on the other capacities. But then stage is good also for the memory because you train it all the time. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the show, share it with friends. Subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts or in your podcast app to never miss a new episode. Leave a review in the app you use. Reviews help us to get better and let more people discover this podcast. For updates, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Telegram. 